I was thinking this week about my my father. Uh, specifically, I was thinking about a sermon that my father gave uh, probably 40 years ago. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how many of you remember the sermon I gave last week. I remember a sermon that my father gave uh, about 40 years ago. Uh, my, my father wasn't a preacher, so there weren't that many sermons uh, over the years to hear. Uh, my father worked for the state prison system. He worked at Soledad State Prison in California and uh, worked there for very close to 30 years. He was a vocational instructor. He taught appliance repair to inmates. And he was very good at it, won a lot of awards and was very highly respected. Uh, but uh, at the same time, he was a man of very deep faith. And he worshiped a savior who, we are told, sets prisoners free. So here's a little odd conundrum. You work in a prison, and you also serve a Savior who sets prisoners free. And, uh, you know, we, we use that phraseology from time to time. We talk about this. Uh, we sing about it. We have some songs that mention this, this freedom that's coming. Uh, while there were probably some people in Soledad State Prison. I don't know personally, but there were probably some people who were uh, unjustly convicted, probably shouldn't have been there. But the vast majority <laughs> of the inmates at Soledad State Prison uh, were right where they needed to be. They, they deserved to be there. The vast majority of them even recognized that they deserved to be there. And so what do you do with this business of of this Savior who's going to set the prisoners free. Uh, well, we know that uh, Jesus frees us from our past. He frees us from condemnation, from that sort of spiritual life sentence that all of us are under. But uh, my father, and this is why I remember this sermon, because this is when he shared this uh, little pearl of wisdom with me. My father had come to the conclusion that he went deeper than that, that most people who walk around free live in a prison of their own making. That they are contained, they are barred, they are not free even though they think that they are exercising their liberty. And what's worse, what's worse about this prison, everybody who was at Soledad State Prison was very clear about where they were. They knew that they were imprisoned. What's worse about this prison that we build for ourselves is that we generally are unaware that we're in it. Unaware that we're captive. We've been studying in Colossians, and Colossians says that Christ has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. But how many of us recall having lived there? The opposite of that is this kingdom of light. And in this kingdom of light, everyone honors the supremacy of Christ, who has supremacy over all things. They honor that. And so they live in the kingdom of light. If you were at Soledad State Prison, it is because you had run afoul of the state at some point. You had uh, engaged in activities that were contrary to the law, you were caught. You developed a criminal record. 
and you were convicted, perhaps by a jury of your peers, or more likely you plea bargained and just went to jail on your own admission of guilt. When we reject the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves living in opposition to the ultimate truth, the ultimate law, the ultimate righteousness, and we find ourselves convicted of sin and living in this prison of sin that we have built for ourselves. So Paul says in Colossians 1, 17 and 18, we read this last week, we're going to review a little bit here, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He is supreme in all things, everything. Nothing left out. Supreme. Most people, and I, let, me, let me go even further, most Christians even, are functionally agnostic in regard to the supremacy of Jesus. And what that means is that even though we might express faith in words, our actions betray something else. Our actions express our persistent doubt in the supremacy of Jesus in all things. So we might hold Christ to be supreme in spiritual issues. We might accept that Christ is the head of the church. We might accept that Christ is the firstborn of the resurrection. But where, where we would accept Christ's supremacy for our spiritual life, we tend to, in our actions, reject the supremacy of Christ for our personal life. Because somehow, the author of all life doesn't know what's best for mine. And while we might accept that Christ is the head of the church, we have a tendency to reject the supremacy of Christ when we're planning out the church budget. Because the author of all things doesn't apparently have a very good head for business. And while we might accept that Christ is the firstborn of the resurrected life, we have a tendency to shy away from his supremacy in, in my life. I want to make sure that my ambitions and my dreams are under my control. Here's the problem with all of this. Christ is not supreme because we've made him so. Christ is not uh, the prom king. He didn't uh, win a popularity vote. He is supreme because he's already supreme. He is supreme because the Father makes it so. Christ is supreme in all things. If we treat him as, he, if he's, as if he's not supreme, he's still supreme. So what is the impact of my living my personal life as if Christ is not actually in charge? As if Christ is not actually the king when he is? I can pretend that I'm running the show but clearly, I am not. 
And if Christ is supreme, how is it that we manage to so effectively ignore that he is supreme? Well, it begins with this. An assumption of godlessness results almost inevitably in a conclusion of godlessness. If we begin with the premise that God does not exist, or that if he does exist, he's not supreme, or he's not in charge, he's not running things in any way that matters, then we reject any evidence to the contrary. We will inevitably come to the conclusion that he does not exist or does not matter, regardless of what we encounter. In other words, it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, it has feathers and a bill like a duck, it has webbed feet like a duck, but we're 99.9% certain that it's not a duck. So no matter what evidence we encounter to the contrary, it must not be a duck. This is how much of our society functions in regard to their understanding of God. We have decided at the outset that God either doesn't exist or doesn't matter. Then we proceed forward in our thinking as if that were true, and then we come to the conclusion that it is true, and then we use our process as evidence that it is true. And in reality, we just started with the false premise. Evidence of the Creator surrounds us, and the witness of Scripture says that in Christ, everything that we're seeing in this creation is held together in this King. And yet we are so inclined, so inclined to seek our own truth, our own delusions, that we preclude the possibility of the supremacy of Christ. And yet many who deny God unwittingly rely on his moral character for their survival. Because we all, as human beings, we desire peace, we desire order, we desire some measure of security in life. And there are basically two ways to pursue those things. One is through power, and one is through moral law. I can have peace in my life, I can have order and I can have security if I am the strongest in the room. If I can dominate everyone else, I can have peace and security even if they don't. That's one way. The other way is that everyone has different amounts of power and control, but we're all subject to some external moral code. And we come to believe not only that the moral code has to be enforced by the society, but that the moral code is based on an actual existence of something good. That goodness actually is. That there, there are things that are just fundamentally good and righteous. And if we make the assumption that there is a moral law based in some reality outside of ourselves, then we are presuming that there is a lawgiver and that there is the existence of right and righteousness. And so all the notions 
that we encounter in our culture today, even from agnostics and atheists and other unbelievers. These notions of goodness, of fairness, of justice, no matter how twisted, no matter how distorted they might be, they all draw from this assumption that there is, in fact, some kind of moral law outside of ourselves. And in our culture, in Western culture, even unbelievers have benefited from our society's Judeo-Christian system of values. We all exist in a culture where people are working and living under the assumption that there are good things and there are bad things and that everyone should, in fact, pursue the good things. And yet, we suffer from contradictions. We, we have a contradiction within ourselves. We have a sinful nature that has us wanting to do some of the bad things sometimes. Let's try out some of the bad things. We see the errors made by believers and by churches, and we think, okay, this failure to live in God's righteousness proves that God's righteousness is flawed. And so we dismiss the truth of God as something that simply cannot be the answer. And so the pernicious lie is that God is not enough. And this pernicious lie poisons the human mind. I grew up in the church. Uh, that doesn't mean I've never believed the lie. I have favorite hymn as a boy. I was thinking about this too last week. Think about things. It's funny the things that you remember. Uh, there's so much about my childhood I don't remember, but I had a favorite hymn when I was a kid. It was a hymn about Jesus calming the sea. It's an old Baptist hymn. It's written for an old Baptist sermon series. And we used to sing it all the time. It was one of my favorites, complete with the King James English. Master, the tempest is raging. Billows are tossing high. The sky is o'ershadowed with darkness. No shelter or help is nigh. Carest thou not that we perish? How can thou sly asleep? When each moment so madly is threatening a grave in the angry deep, the winds and the waves shall obey thy will. Peace be still. Peace be still. Whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea or demons or men or whatever it be, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of oceans and earth and sky. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace, peace, be still. a child's faith and a child's imagination, a God who could speak to a storm and calm it is completely reasonable. It's even obvious that God is so big, that God is so great, that could be in everything and woven through everything and holding everything together. But then guess what happens? We grow up and we learn and we become wise. And we learn that God is not that great. 
that he's not in everything, that he can't manage it all. We've, we've got to step in and take over for him. We've got to, we've got to exercise control. We've got to make sure that we're in charge. And so we begin to compartmentalize the supremacy of God. God, you could be in charge here. I'm going to be in charge there. You could be in charge of church stuff. You could be in charge of spiritual stuff. I'm going to be in charge of world stuff. We start to make this distinction between our spiritual life and our real, real life. Begin to make decisions for myself that exclude God from the equation. That pretend that his supremacy doesn't exist. That he isn't the one that speaks to nature. That speaks things into existence. Paul doesn't say... Jesus discovered physics. He says he invented physics. It doesn't say that Jesus decoded the human genome. He says he wrote the code. There's nothing about this life that he doesn't know, nothing about this life that he didn't create, nothing about this life that he's not woven through and he doesn't hold together. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And it really doesn't matter, folks, this morning, if you were the most prolific pagan ever or if you were the teacher's pet at your Sunday school. The reality is we have all lived in that darkness. We have all lived in that rebellion. We have been enemies in our minds. We have concluded to one extent or another that God is not enough. And that we have to somehow supplement that. In 1972, there's a researcher named John Calhoun, and he conducted an experiment, the most famous of a number of experiments that he conducted in this series uh, that we have come to know as the, the mouse utopia, although sometimes he used rats as well. But he was studying the impact of population growth. And in the most famous of his experiments, called University Universe 25, excuse me, he built an enclosure to house approximately 3,000 mice. He divided it into 16 cells, and he put multiple nesting boxes in each cell. He provided ample food, water, and nesting material. He removed all the waste that they generated. And, of course, they had no predators to fear. He introduced into this environment four breeding pairs of healthy mice. It took them a while to adjust to their new uh, digs. But after they did, they got about the business of breeding. And pretty soon, as you will not be surprised if you've ever had to deal with mice in your house, Pretty soon, they were breeding very effectively. They were basically doubling in population every 55 days. But, surprisingly, before the end of the first year, population growth began to slow down. And by a year and a half in, population growth actually started to decline. 
And so they start looking at the reasons for this. Well, there's a breakdown in socialization. Males, who generally were only aggressive if they're defending their nesting area, became overtly aggressive with each other for no apparent reason. And the females, now left alone to defend their nesting boxes, became aggressive themselves and unfortunately often turned that aggression on their own young. Normal breeding patterns were interrupted. Some of the mice behaved in exclusively homosexual ways. Some of them became hypersexual, basically mounting anything male or female that they encountered. Some of them did not participate in breeding at all, and some of them, uh, when they did have a litter, the females, when they did have a litter, would neglect them or even cannibalize them. There were new classes of mice that appeared. There were outcasts that couldn't find a place within the mouse society. And then there were this, this group that Calhoun called the beautiful ones. The beautiful ones were isolated, and they spent all of their time eating, sleeping, and grooming themselves. They didn't participate in any other activities. They did not breed. They did not... Uh, have families at all. They did not uh, particularly participate in the rest of the social groups. They looked great, but did nothing. And whenever they encountered a new stimulus, researchers found they were incapable of adjusting. And although they looked healthy, looked healthier than a lot of the other specimens in the colony, they were in fact incredibly stupid. And so with the increased violence and absent effective natural roles, there was a drop in reproduction. And in less than three years, the colony was completely extinct, in spite of the fact that all of their needs were still being amply supplied. Now, over the years, I've taken this as a parable about what overpopulation will do. Here's the problem. The colony never filled up. As a matter of fact, it maxed out at about two-thirds of its capacity and then started to decline. There were pods in the colony that were never fully occupied. There was overcrowding, but only because the mice all chose to be in the same pods rather than expanding into new territory. Calhoun himself, when he was reporting on this, I think this is fascinating, he quotes from the book of Revelation. When was the last time you heard a researcher quoting scripture? Uh, he quotes from the book of Revelation. And he talks about the horsemen of the apocalypse. And he says, that first horseman, rider on a white horse, his job is to make sure that we are freed from spiritual death. And the second horseman, rider on a pale horse, is physical death. He says, we're concerned with both of these things, but our research has tended towards the second. But here's what Calhoun concluded from his research. If we provide everything that's required for the body, 
but provide nothing for the spirit, both the spirit and the body will eventually die. Now, mice are not men. And we have to be careful making comparisons, and yet the comparisons are intriguing. When society moves away from the order that God has provided, are there not consequences? Have we not seen every time that the society rejected God's way that there's confusion about what our roles are, what our jobs are, what our function in the society is, what our identity is? Don't we see an increase in violence? Don't we see aberrant and abusive sexuality? Don't we see purposelessness? Don't we see people who become more beautiful but less intelligent? All of these things happen because of our distance from God. Our distance from God deprives us of his provision. But it's not to say that we can't build a comfortable life. The reality is we live in a creation that was specifically created to provide for us. And yet we have to work at it a little bit more. But guess what? You plant seeds in the ground, you can grow food. You breed your animals, you can grow food. This creation, this world in which we've been placed has been specifically designed to provide for our needs. And so with a little bit of work, you can make it provide what you need, at least physically. But absent God, we begin to lose sight of truth. We begin to lose sight of reality. We begin to lose sight of goodness. And it becomes very difficult to figure out what our purpose here is. So what happens in a culture where, in all honesty, our physical needs are amply supplied, but our spirits are starved? Colossians says everything's created through him, for him, and in him. It's all held together. First Chronicles says every good and perfect gift comes from God? Have you ever been snorkeling? You want to snorkeling, put a mask on, put a little tube, float on top of the water. You can look down into the water and breathe through the tube. You know why we don't do that any deeper? Because the longer that tube gets, the harder it is to breathe. The longer that tube is, the more carbon dioxide builds up in it. And the more we're breathing air that we've already breathed and is now deprived of oxygen. You try to breathe through a tube that's too long, like breathing through, you know, don't, don't try this at home. Don't get a garden hose to go deep sea diving. It doesn't work. As you're breathing into that tube, you're not getting all the oxygen that you need and in fact, you're poisoning yourself with the carbon dioxide you've already expelled. I think that's what it's like when we choose distance from God. We want to think, oh, I, I, I can still breathe okay. I can still get by. But the longer that tube gets, the more I'm breathing my own garbage and the less 
life-giving godliness I can, I can consume. I'm too far away from the source. Now, when that happens, when that happens, the first thing we should do is rise to the surface and take a deep breath, right? But here's what actually happens in our culture. Deprived of our true source and our true purpose, we foolishly conclude God's truth is actually inhibiting our progress. In other words, as it gets harder to breathe, we think to ourselves, how annoying, let's go deeper. Let's see if I could stray a little bit further from God and the problem will somehow magically correct itself. Let's get a bit further from the source. Let's, let's have a little bit less oxygen and see if things get better. At the very moment we should be gasping for breath, we want to go deeper. That's what we're watching our culture do right now. And rejecting godliness, rejecting righteousness, rejecting God's order hasn't brought anybody any more contentment, has it? As a matter of fact, as we begin to discover that we're not as content as we expected to be, we determine we must move further from God to find the contentment we lack. Naturally, the solution has to be outside of the source. And anyone who champions a life of godliness, of godly order, of obedience, even a life of godly love, that person has to be silenced. They have to be shut up. They have to be shouted down because the reality of this moment in our culture is that the lies we're telling won't stand up to truth. They won't even stand up to basic logic most of the time. And so anybody who offers these has to be shut up quickly so that we can persist in our delusion. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1, 21. At one time, you were separated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil ways. But because Christ died, God has brought you back to himself. Christ's death has made you holy in God's sight. So now you don't have any flaw. You're free from blame. But you must keep your faith steady and firm. You must not move away from the hope the good news holds out to you. This is the good news that you heard. It has been preached to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, now serve the good news. I am happy because of what I'm suffering for you. My suffering joins with and continues the suffering of Christ. I suffer for his body, which is the church. Paul says, Jesus frees us from the sin prison that we've built for ourselves. That's the first and most fundamental lesson of the gospel, right? That Jesus has freed us from this life of sin, this imprisonment that we've created for ourselves. This is something that we should know. We must know that when our freedom becomes our prison, we need Jesus. Can, can you say that with me? When our freedom becomes our prison, 
We need Jesus. We know it so well. We know it so well that we must say it. 